0: Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity entitled Gaining Control and Co Managing Severe Asthma is part of a video presentation and is provided by the American Academy of Family Physicians and the American Thoracic Society and is supported by an independent educational grant from AstraZeneca Pharmaceuticals LP and GlaxoSmithKline. The following program has been edited for our radio listeners. We encourage you to view the video portion of this segment at ReachMD.com CME. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. Here's your faculty, Drs. Barbara Yawn and Sally Wenzel.
1: Welcome to the American Thoracic Society and American Academy of Family Physicians educational activity on the topic of severe asthma this is module four gaining control and co-managing severe asthma and co-managing with our specialist colleagues
2: and i'm sally wenzel once again professor of public health medicine and immunology at the university of pittsburgh and
1: i'm barbara yon i'm an adjunct professor in the department of family and community health at the university of minnesota (laughs) in this module we're going to review the clinical trial data on the safety and efficacy of the existing targeted therapies, specifically the biologics that are within the last few years uh, to just remind everybody why these are appropriate to consider and for which subtype of patients. So again, reviewing the clinical trial data, looking at why we think these new medications or newer medications are appropriate for certain groups of people with asthma. The severe asthma decision tree is this care by a primary care physician or a specialist physician. We really need to think about this as similar and sometimes they overlap, but there are certain things that we as primary care physicians definitely need to do in our patients with asthma, especially the ones that are having difficulty and we're having difficulty getting their symptoms under control. You need to confirm the diagnosis. Is this really asthma? Once you've decided it is asthma, then we want to rule out factors that are contributing to their symptoms, their exacerbation, and their poor quality of life. Uh, And we've talked about those things like adherence and triggers. We want to optimize management. We want to have the management appropriate for the symptoms and the phenotypes now that these patients have, and we want to refu- review their response. It says after three to six months, but I think that depends. There are we actually review their response in four weeks, uh, and it depends on how symptomatic they are and what kind of changes you've made. If we've been through all of those things and we're still having difficulty or we have a question about anywhere along the way, of like this wasn't clearly asthma or not asthma, I can't make a diagnosis, then we're going to refer to the specialist who's going to go through many of these same steps, like confirming the diagnosis, but also assessing is this severe asthma and what kind of phenotypes may be there. Think about appropriate treatment strategies both non-biologic treatments that we may not have addressed thinking about occupational asthma Mm -hmm. perhaps more than we have or considering add-on biologic for type two targeted treatments they're going to review the response and continue to optimize management now the one thing that's missing in this slide of course is the arrow that goes back to primary care Because these patients, uh, especially as a rural physician, they're not going to drive 60, 70 miles every time they need something with their asthma. Most certainly not. They're going to come back and see me. Mm -hmm. So we do need to have this be a loop that we both talk to each other, and now we can do that via the EMR or other Mm -hmm. uh, easy asynchronous methods, and we don't have to call each other on the phone all the time, but it really is important and appropriate that we go back and forth with what was your finding, what did you do, what do you expect me to do. If I make a change, I need to let you know I've made a change Mm -hmm. so we can manage this patient appropriately. So when to refer the patient with difficult-to-treat or severe asthma. Well, we've talked about that. Severe asthma can be just as complicated as pulmonary hypertension or pulmonary fibrosis or many other conditions that I don't see very often, and I would like someone helping me decide, what do I do, what are the next steps? And it can be appropriate for the specialist to manage the patient, either over a short time, making a a diagnosis, changing therapy, and sending the patient back, or there's some patients that need to continue having their asthma management really based with a specialist Mm -hmm. and I will take care of other things and if I have an issue with the asthma I'm going to call you when the patient's there in my office (laughs) good so atypical or complicated presentation Uh, for example we've talked about this when I do the spirometry they have mixed obstructive restrictive disease They have normal uh, spirometry, but they're very symptomatic. If I happen to get uh, a CT, perhaps they're a smoker and I'm screening for lung cancer, and there's nodules or there's evidence of bronchiectasis, they need to go to someone. Additional testing, the allergy skin testing, we've talked about that is a possibility, but I don't do that in my office. Uh, If I need something beyond the blood skin testing, then I might refer for that. Certainly, rhinoscopy i liked your suggestion of looking with the otoscope but sometimes you need more, more definitive sure. if i think i see something i need somebody else to see them uh... the complete pulmonary function test this is when we talk about uh... do they need diffusing capacity do they need total lung volumes things that can be helpful when i'm trying to distinguish is this really asthma or is this asthma and COPD, or is there something, something else, else going on? And then certainly the, the provocative challenges, the methicoline, saline, other things, I don't think most of us do those. Uh, those are helpful in a, a, a subset of mm-hmm. patients, uh, and they're important, and certainly anybody that needs bronchoscopy. The other comorbid conditions that we've talked about, the sinusitis, nasal polyps, aspergillosis, severe rhinitis, all of these kinds of things may require a second opinion or actual referral for could you manage this and send it back when you think it's appropriate. The patient requires uh, confirmation of a history of occupational or environmental inhalants or ingested uh, substances. Sometimes this is necessary for insurance. It's necessary for the employer. Uh, This second opinion and this confirmation is another reason I may refer a few patients. The patient has a life-threatening asthma exacerbation. I don't think any of us have any question about that. (laughs) They're in the hospital. They're in the ICU. They're on a ventilator. They need uh, somebody else to be helping, and they're not meeting their goals after three to six months of step four therapy. Even if I move to step five, I think I still need to initiate that uh, referral, and it may Mm -hmm. take a while. I think that's very important the people who use Albuterol pretty much every day and I think we miss that sometimes that really is not acceptable that is out-of-control asthma Uh, if somebody's having that many symptoms every day they sometimes patients will sometimes say oh well that's okay you know I can control it. they are used to it. Yeah but it is not not acceptable they most likely can have a better quality of life and we want to get them there and then the uh, two or more bursts of oral steroids one of the things i do ask primary care to think about uh... and i think we see this is sometimes people with an asthma exacerbation don't get a burst of oral steroids they got called bronchitis and they get ten days of antibiotics so i think we need to be really suspicious if we have somebody who has asthma and we see oh yeah they've gotten uh, antibiotics for bronchitis twice until proven otherwise, I think that's two exacerbations, mm. and I think in many
2: cases it is.
1: Yeah, and I think they need to be evaluated yeah. with that in mind. So, the complicated therapy uh, certainly your office may have more opportunity for education and support uh, than I do for allergy avoidance, for example. Uh, I hear all the time, "Oh, it's dust mites. Well, throw it in hot water." Well, that doesn't work. And it doesn't
2: work in most cases, no, correct?
1: it has to be, you know, hotter than 132 <laughs> yep. degrees, I think it is. And almost all of us have governors on our hot water heater, mm-hmm. and it never gets it above, never gets oh, maybe 116. <laughs> mm-hmm. So you're not going to be killing those dust mites. It takes somebody who knows that and has that experience frequently, even for something as common as, as a dust mite allergy. When the patient is being considered for immunotherapy, certainly I think they need a consultation. If they have significant psychiatric, psychosocial family problems, well, the referral may not be to the allergist. It may be to a mental health professional to help me co-manage. And then certainly if a patient's being considered for biologics, I think they need a specialist referral
2: so when that patient comes to me there are certain things that i'm going to do is as, as that specialist that you've referred the, the patient um, to and i think the first thing that i'm going to do other than again making sure that the asthma diagnosis is correct and, and we've right. addressed it all addressed all the comorbidities um, I'm going to try to phenotype that patient. I'm going to want to understand, is that patient a type 2 high asthmatic or a type 2 low asthmatic? And I'm going to do my blood counts. I'm going to do my exhaled nitric oxide. I have it in my office. I use it all the time. I find it actually very, very helpful. And spirometry pre and post bronchodilator. And again, I think if I have a patient who has normal pulmonary function testing and they've got um, evidence on whatever test, ACT, APCAR, et cetera, that their asthma is not well controlled, I'm going to want to do a bronchoprovocation test. I'm going to want to do a methacholine test to determine gee, do they really have asthma? Is something else going on here? I don't do as many of them as I used to because I think with our combination of inflammatory biomarkers, uh, exhaled nitric oxide, and, and bloody eosinophils, we can do less now. Um, well, and your inspiratory loop and, and on your respiratory et cetera. Uh, but it still remains a test that can be valuable in, in some cases. Uh, You want to uh, distinguish again, is this difficult asthma, which is really asthma with a lot of comorbidities, or is it truly refractory asthma that you've got them well managed and you still can't get them under control? And then again, you want to distinguish that severe asthma patient from somebody with who's a similar illness. So things like EGPA, eosinophilic granulomatosis, and polyangiitis, hypersensitivity pneumonitis, actually not that uncommon, and again, very much exposure related, uh, um, similar to the occupational asthma. Asthmatic granulomatosis, which is actually a type of asthma variant that we described at the University of Pittsburgh, now getting close to 10 years ago, um, which has granulomas in the lung and and asthma and seems to be very unresponsive to typical therapies. Sarcoidosis, you can have airway involvement in sarcoid, and that can uh, masquerade as uh, severe asthma, and then the allergic bronchopulmonary Um, aspergillosis, ABPA, uh, which is a type of asthma but leads to actually substantial bronchiectasis and which can actually be diagnosed on a CT scan and and with uh, blood testing. Uh, So again, all of those things really should be identified as either uh, the the actual diagnosis or the confounding diagnosis because again, the treatment for these uh, are are going to be different than just treatment for asthma. Sometimes CT imaging can be helpful. Uh, I probably would say that of the patients that I see with difficult asthma, um, I probably have a CT scan on somewhere around three quarters of those patients. They will actually get a CT scan. Uh, I think it's especially important when there is an abnormal presentation to the symptoms. And I would always get a high resolution, non-contrast CT scan. There's almost no reason to give a patient contrast for these uh, types of, of diagnostic patterns. Sinus CAT scans can actually be very helpful, especially in adult onset asthma patients. Patients may not know or appreciate that they have any sinus problems, but then you look at their sinus CT scan and their sinuses are completely plugged with mucus. Um, and again, that there's obviously different treatment approaches to, to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, laryngoscopy, typically, again, if you have um, a provocative challenge that you're looking to see is this asthma, what I'll do is put a laryngoscopy at the end of that methicoline challenge such that I've, irritated their airways, irritated their vocal cords, and and if I find they have a flat response, they actually don't have a drop in their FEV1 during their methicoline challenge, I will go in and do a laryngoscopy at the very end to see if they have closure of their vocal cords. Many times you'll be able to pick it up on on that uh, Mm -hmm. testing. Um, Sometimes if you have people who, even though they're on high doses of proton pump inhibitors or H2 blockers, They can still have refractory uh, reflux disease. I think it's time to send a patient to a gastroenterologist if if that's the case. And then um, you've already heard a little bit about the methicoline and the lung volume testing. All right, so we're pretty sure this patient has severe asthma. We've done all the right tests. How are we going to manage this patient? Well, obviously, the first thing you want to do is make sure that they've been tried on all of the appropriate non-biologic treatments, Uh, And if they have not been on high-dose therapy, you can certainly increase their their dose for at least three to six months. And sometimes I've seen people respond to higher than the standard dose inhaled corticosteroids so that they're on their combination therapy, and there's a maximum amount of inhaled corticosteroids that you can use in combination therapies. So you'll add a second inhaled corticosteroid. Sometimes that works, although actually relatively small um, uh, percentage of the time. Things like long-acting muscarinics, if they have a persistent bronchodilator response, again, leukotriene modifiers, if there's concomitant uh, allergies or upper airway issues. And sometimes in in patients who have aspirin exacerbated respiratory disease and nasal polyps, these drugs can be helpful too. And then macrolide antibiotics, of course, have been talked about quite a bit. Uh, So things like azithromycin, clarithromycin can help. And they can help astonishingly well in some patients, but we still don't really know how to target who are the patients that respond
1: and there was just a publication talking about using them in children and the response wasn't nearly what people had hoped, had hoped for. it would be yeah. and so that, that doesn't look like it's something we're going to be doing very regularly
2: and, and I would say at least again in my experience it's patients who develop their asthma in adulthood and often give you a history of I had a bad cold it went to my chest and I've never been better since in those cases, it's probably worth giving it a, a try. It's, again, it's a relatively inexpensive, relatively benign medication, and some of those patients will in fact get better. And then don't forget to dis- discontinue ineffective add-on therapies. I can't tell you how many times, again, rather than take anything away, people just keep piling on medications and there's no way we talk about adherence. if a patient is on six different medications, i don 't care how good you are you're never going to be able to yeah. be adherent to all of those medications. But then now we're fortunately at the era where there are alternatives, and this is where we can start ki- considering these biologic uh, agents, and I think these biologic agents really emerged concomitantly with our better understanding of the inflammatory and molecular phenotypes that underlie patients who have uh, severe, difficult uh, asthma. And the whole concept now is is bring the right drug to the right patient. Don't expose patients to drugs that you know, might have some side effects if it's not the right patient, the right drug for that patient. But on the other hand, if it is the right drug for that patient, get them on that as soon as, as possible. Now, most of these drugs have been trialed in large scale clinical trials. Thousands of patients have been treated with these medications by now. And really all of these drugs have shown an ability to reduce steroid uh, requiring exacerbations, probably the most important outcome. And there's some impact on other outcomes, things like asthma quality of life, symptoms, upper airways, as well as lung function testing. So they've been able to hit all of the right things. Well, and
1: you had the snot there. In case people don't know what that is, that is like a control test for For your nose. (laughs) For your nose, yeah.
2: And it's kind of what it sounds like. Mm -hmm. Yep, it, it absolutely is. So there are currently five FDA-approved biologic agents um, based on uh, what the FDA has approved and the the GINA guidelines. Um, The oldest of these is anti-IgE, omalizumab. Many of you are probably familiar with that. It was um, first, first asthma biologic. It's been available for, shockingly, nearly 20 years, so a very long time. And it was developed to target allergic asthma. We'll get into that a little bit more. Then there are three drugs that actually target the IL-5 pathway, one of which uh, targets the cytokine itself, anti-IL-5, two of which target anti-IL-5, and one of which targets the receptor, the anti-IL-5 receptor. Um, The data show that increasing blood eosinophils are associated with increasing risk of asthma exacerbations. That's why it's really important to get the eosinophils on on the CBC. But I think most of the data would say that they are primarily effective in patients with elevated eosinophils. And most, most uh, studies would say greater than or equal to 300 eosinophils in the peripheral blood, um, and sometimes even in patients who have a little bit lower than that. That's why, again, it gets back to this measuring it several times, because many of the times when you measure 175 or 200 eosinophils on one measurement, if you keep measuring it, it'll be above 300 on the, on the next or uh, another time. And then there's one drug that targets the anti-IL-4 receptor, um, which is uh, the uh, receptor that actually binds two different cytokines, interleukin-4 and interleukin-13. They're present on, on many cell types. Uh, it's, the, it's a broad therapy that targets this single receptor, and again, blocks both IL-4 and IL-13, and it appears to work in patients with slightly lower levels of bloody eosinophils, greater than or equal to 150 per microliter, um, or elevated exhaled nitric oxide uh, around 20 parts per billion. So let's go through the evidence that supports these different biologics. Again, omelizumab, the first of these, targeted the uh, IgE molecule, it's administered by a subcutaneous injection every two to four weeks. Uh, the dosing is actually dependent upon the size of the patient, their blood uh, IgE levels, uh, and, and again, somewhat uh, dependent upon their, their age a- as well. It's useful for patients age 6 and above, or at least it's been indicated for patients 6 and above. But you can have patients that are too heavy to use it. Um, If you're really over 300 pounds, even with a relatively low IgE level, it's going to be hard to dose it appropriately. And then if you have a very high IgE level, it's not recommended for patients with very, very high IgE levels because you can't dose it high enough uh, in both of those cases. The overall response rates are somewhere between 60 and 70 percent in patients with allergic asthma. But interestingly, allergies have never been a very good predictor of who responds to omalizumab, hmm. even though it was developed that way, which I find fascinating. It seems to be, in a post hoc analysis, probably needs to be repeated in a prospective manner, that if you have high evidence or evidence for high type 2 biomarkers for high exhaled nitric oxide, high blood eosinophils, those are the patients that are going to do the best with that whether or not they have allergies by traditional measures
1: well and you can sort of understand that i mean we're talking about something that's been around for 20 years that means the testing of it probably started 25 or of 30 course. years ago and we weren't looking we at phenol and bloody eosinophils at that time so the best marker we had of those two things was they have allergies they have
2: allergies exactly but we've 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 learned since we then. have <laughs> um, There is a safety uh, uh, notation. Uh, There is a risk of anaphylaxis in in a small percentage of patients. And all patients are advised to have an EpiPen available at the time of of dosing. It's dosed uh, in a clinic. It's not dosed at home. uh, And so that's important. You have a clinic that can do that. It's indicated for moderate to severe persistent asthma in patients, again, over the age of six or above uh, with a positive skin test or evidence for uh, IG- specific IgE to perennial or seasonal allergens and whose symptoms are not adequately controlled on, on moderate to high dose inhaled corticosteroids. Um, there are a few other indications, but we're not going to particularly Well, talk and
1: about this them. one, uh, it's been around a long time, and after a patient is stabilized and established on this, and we have gone from weekly injections to every two to four weeks, I think sometimes these patients end up back in my office for me to give them this. And the reason is that, again, the nearest allergist is 60, 60 70, right. 80 miles away. and. In Minnesota, in the winter, that can be a <laughs> daunting. blizzard away. That yes, can be
2: daunting. and
1: so you know, as long as we are comfortable with the very unlikely occurrence of anaphylaxis and feel like we could handle it, we have a crash cart. We know what to do. Uh, I'm comfortable with the patient after they've been on this for six to months to a year to have the injections actually in, in, in the my office. Yeah. I used to give uh, you know allergy shots after stabilization too. Mm-hmm. So I think that there is that co-management possibility.
2: A- absolutely, and of course there are some complicating factors because sometimes it, the office has to bill, buy and bill for it, and sometimes the, there is a pharmacy that buys and bills for it. So all of those things can complicate the situation. But yeah, I mean, in in most cases, if primary care is willing and able to give these drugs, there's no reason that you have to travel the 60 miles to see the specialist when it certainly could be given. Well, I have to
1: say that uh, because those omelizumab has been around for 20 years, I'm a lot more comfortable with it <laughs> than I am with the newer agents. Oh, yeah.
2: Well, uh, you know, to be honest with you, I think the newer agents may actually be even safer than the omelizumab is from the standpoint of those acute reactions. So mepolizumab was the first of the anti 5 antagonists that, de- that was developed. It's administered, again, by a subcutaneous injection. There is now, just in the last few months, the ability to administer it at at home. So you actually get around going to the specialist or the primary care office. Um, It's dosed once a month. It's fixed dosing. There's no adjustment for weight or eosinophils or anything. Um, It's been shown reliably to reduce exacerbations in patients who have elevated blood eosinophils and generally around 300, although maybe some wiggle room there. Uh, and it improves quality of life. It was the first biologic to definitively show that if you have someone who's on daily prednisone, daily medrol, that you can reduce their oral steroid dose when you start treatment with an anti-L5 drug, which was a huge advance. We have oh. had no drugs that have ever really been able to rely well, on and it.
1: Show that, that is very, very yeah. important for those very very difficult Symptomatic patients, <laughs> patients yes. Yep. And this is the one that has just changed age indications too, isn't Correct. it? Correct.
2: So this one now can be used for uh, children age 6 and, and above uh, based on uh, some very uh, good safety data that, is, that has come out in, in a group of children. Uh, it's indicated for maintenance therapy, add-on therapy in patients with very severe asthma, Again, typically it's patients who have a history of exacerbations who are on high doses of inhaled and oral corticosteroids, who have evidence for high uh, eosinophils in in their blood. And it's also recently been approved for eosinophilic granulomatosis with polyangiitis, although the the dosing is different in those patients. It's actually three times the dose that it is in asthma.
1: Well, and this one, as you said, is approved for the patient to administer or the parent to administer Mm -hmm. at home. Do you start it that way, or do you start them in your office for a few doses?
2: Well, this, is, this just has happened. But to be honest with you, my um, specialist hat would say that I would want to do it in the office probably for three to four months to kind of understand, are is the patient getting better with it, and is the patient having reactions to it, whatever. And then when I'm comfortable that they're not, then I would send them out with their home administration kit and, and allow them to continue it at home. You know, some of us have um, thought that, that having them come into the office is actually helpful because when there are concerns about adherence, we know that the patients are adherent so, ad- so long as they're coming into the office. And it's when you start administering at home, you don't then really know, are they taking their medication any more than you know that they're taking their inhaled corticosteroids. So there's always that sort of element that you you have to play with as well. Well, and
1: I think that's where some communication back and forth may be helpful because I may have seen this patient for five, ten years, and I have some sense of how well I think they are able to Mm -hmm. adhere. And if Mm -hmm. I do have adherence concerns, uh, then I really ought to let you know because I would really not like them to be trying to do something at home when, you know, there are people that just have very chaotic lives for a whole lot of reasons, and this just wouldn't be a good idea. (laughs) It wouldn't work for them. Right, and we need
2: to communicate about that. I think that's, uh, again, that wonderful team that can exist between uh, primary care and and specialists. Uh, so there 's another anti l5 antagonist, which is also on the market, unlike the uh, uh, mepolizumab This is administered by uh, a milligram per kilogram dosing and it 's administered as an IV infusion, so you actually have to go into an infusion center, some center who's able to give an, uh, start an IV and, and monitor it it 's given over a twenty to fifteen minute period of time, again once a month. Um, it has, similar to uh, mepolizumab, it's been shown to reduce asthma exacerbations in eosinophilic patients by about 50%, uh, improves lung function testing. It does, like omalizumab, have a black box warning um, about uh, frequent anaphylaxis. So again, patients are required to be observed after dosing. I would have a, an EpiPen available uh, if you're going to uh, dose with this drug. But again, this drug is, is only given in infusion centers. Um, it's indicated for add-on treatment of severe eosinophilic asthma. It is only um, indicated for for adults, 18 or above, not indicated for children. And although it can probably be used in in, uh, patients who have eosinophils less than 400 microliters, it was studied in patients who had eosinophils of at least 400 per per microliter. So studied in a slightly more eosinophilic group than than any of the other anti l 5s it's not indicated for any other diseases
1: and so you know one of the things that I always like to be able to do is tell my patients what they could anticipate so if one of them comes back and they're on this drug and they have to go to an infusion center do they also go to your office every month how does that work or do you just send them to an infusion center and see them Every, every three, three to four months?
2: months? Yes. Okay. So as long as there's no issues with the the um, uh, administration, I will have them go to the infusion center, get their infusions once a month. It's noted in the chart, obviously, that they showed up or, or didn't. And then I will see them every three to four months to monitor their improvements or, or lack thereof, because not everyone responds with these with these treatments. Um, and then the third of the anti-L5-targeted therapies is benrolizumab. It differs from the other ones in that it is an receptor antibody, so it targets the IL-5 receptor as opposed to the cytokine itself. It also differs from the others because it is administered as a subcutaneous injection every four weeks but only for the first three months. And then so long as the patient looks like they're responding, one would continue it at every two month dosing. So it benefits from again having a uh, Stretch st- it stretching it out uh, a bit uh... it reduces exacerbations again similar to to the other agents somewhere between forty to fifty percent uh... like the other like uh... mepolizumab has been shown to decrease your dependency on oral corticosteroids in a very nice steroid sparing study uh... there's probably more prolonged suppression of blood eosinophils with uh... than there is with either mepolizumab or reslizumab and we don't understand exactly why that is but seemingly targeting the receptor um, and uh, um, actually Uh, involved in killing the eosinophil as part of that, you probably have a a better and more prolonged effect on blood eosinophils. Uh, There is a higher rate of hypersensitivity reactions, again, about 3%. Um, Again, anaphylaxis is not completely uncommon, but they don't have a black box warning yet. It may get to that level eventually, but right now it, it does not. Uh, Again, indications are very similar to the others that we've been talking uh, about. Add-on maintenance therapy for severe asthma, but uh, over the age of 18 uh, with an eosinophilic phenotype. And typically, uh, again, the eosinophils are defined as greater than or equal to 300, with some indication that it may be beneficial in those with uh, greater than 150. It's not indicated for any other uh, disease as Uh, either, but it seems to work best in patients who um, have adult-onset disease, interestingly. So you have Mm -hmm. eosinophils and adult-onset disease. If you have eosinophils, adult-onset disease, nasal polyps, and oral steroid dependency, those are probably the patients that actually do the best with adding on this anti-L5 receptor antibody. Dupilumab um, is the last of the new biologics. It's different from any of the others. It blocks the alpha subunit of the IL-4 receptor. It, like the others, is a subcutaneous injection. But unlike the others, except for the new indications with mepolizumab, it is self-administered. So you start out right from the beginning giving the patient instructions on how to self-inject and then sending them out with their, um, uh, with their medications, and they inject every two weeks. It's not an every four-week drug. It's an every two-week drug. The data are pretty clear on that. Um, It starts with a loading dose, and there's two different doses that have been approved, Uh, a 200 milligram every other week and a 300 milligram every other week. The differences in their efficacy are actually modest, and the reasons that there are two doses um, are based on its use in in, uh, um, eczema, uh, atopic dermatitis and its use in, steer- in the steroid sparing study where it was done at 300 milligrams. So it's available as two different doses, but I would always start with a 200 milligram dose to be quite honest with but
1: you. But would know that if this is a steroid dependent patient you and you don't get what you want, you, you can go up. It the isn't dose. that, well, there's nothing else here, I have to go somewhere else.
2: You, you can increase the dose. Exactly. How
1: long would you wait before you would increase the dose?
2: I would probably wait at least three months before okay. I increase the dose. Okay. Um, like Again, like the others, there's consistent uh, reductions in asthma exacerbations, maybe a little bit more than with some of the other drugs of about 60%. Uh, it does, in fact, improve lung function, probably more so than the other drugs do. Uh, but, again works best in patients with more and more evidence of type 2 inflammation. So if you have bl- high blood eosinophils, if you have high exhaled nitric oxide, those are the patients who um, this drug is going to, going to work in, uh, at least more likely to work in. Um, there is also data to suggest that you can reduce your dependency on oral corticosteroids, just like the mepolizumab and the benralizumab, with really pretty similar data. Um, you can have hypersensitive reactions. Surprise, surprise, all of these drugs seem to give right. you some uh, possibility of having that uh, sort of reaction. Uh, it can. It is, again, indicated for add-on maintenance therapy in moderate to severe asthma. So their indication actually at the FDA level was moderate to severe asthma, uh, age 12 and above, and again with a type 2 high phenotype. It is approved for other diseases. It's approved for eczema, atopic dermatitis uh, from uh, 12 and, and above. And it's also now recently been approved for add-on treatment with uncontrolled chronic rhinosinusitis and nasal polyps. So even if there's no evidence of asthma, but you have really severe upper airway disease, especially with nasal polyps, there is an indication for it in that uh, uh, disease process as well, but again, in adults, not in, in children.
1: Can you talk about the moderate? I To me, the idea of I'm going to go to a biologic for moderate asthma is a little bit of a concern uh, because they're expensive. They're very expensive. Um,
2: They're very expensive. And they were, I, I was a little too surprised to see that. It's based on the patients that were in the clinical trials because the clini- patients in the clinical trials were on moderate to high doses of inhaled corticosteroids. Um, it did work in those patients, but I'm in complete agreement with you that until you've gotten to high-dose inhaled corticosteroids in combination therapy and shown that the patient is not doing well with that, I would not use any biologic until you get to, to that threshold. That's what the FDA indications are.
1: Yes. Well, and there's always FDA indications and what you do in the real world of clinical practice. Absolutely. Absolutely.
2: Well, now we've started our patient on our biologic. They're expensive. We really don't want to continue the patient on the biologic for extended periods of time if it's not working. It does have potential for side effects. They all do. And they're very expensive. So you really want to reevaluate the patient every three to six months, for sure. You want to monitor asthma symptom control, exacerbations, and lung function. But to be honest with you, the biggest signal for these drugs is on exacerbations. It gets a little complicated when you're monitoring patients for exacerbations. If they have mm, two to three exacerbations per year and they've been on the drug for three to four months, and, but they don't <laughs> feel better, do you know whether to continue that, that mm-hmm. drug or not? they haven't had gone a long enough period of time to know whether they've had a reduction in their exacerbation. So it can get pretty complicated. And you can have those rooms of pulmonologists and allergists, and they will probably fight about that one to figure out exactly when is the threshold to to, uh, try a different biologic. But you certainly want to assess uh, your type 2 comorbidities. You want to see if there is an effect on the upper airway dupilumab. Uh, actually has a pretty good effect on on the upper airways. Atopic dermatitis, obviously. Uh, Eosinophilic esophagitis, interestingly, very controversial, whether these drugs are going to help eosinophilic esophagitis, maybe with uh, the anti-L4 receptor antibody, but the anti-L5s to date have not shown efficacy in in that area. Again, nasal polyps with indication for dupilumab um, in relationship to nasal polyps. Have they been able to taper back on their oral corticosteroids? That's a really good indication of response uh, to therapy. Is the patient satisfied? Does the patient feel like I'm doing better on it? That's another really important question to answer. And then, obviously, you want to continue to optimize their overall
0: management. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to CME on ReachMD with Drs. Barbara Yawn and Sally Wenzel. This activity entitled... Gaining Control and Co-Managing Severe Asthma is part of a four-part video presentation available at ReachMD.com CME. All right, let's move on to our case studies. All right. We're going to revisit old Liam here. So Liam
2: is still a 12-year-old with asthma, poorly controlled on moderate-dose ICS and leukotriene receptor antagonists, issues with the various uh, exposures, uh, incorrect uh, inhaler use, but they've all been resolved. His APGAR is APGAR still four? So we're still in that uncontrolled range. Still having day and nighttime symptoms. Not able to be as active as he'd like to be. Uh, his FEV1 is not normal even on a, a good day. Uh, his allergy testing is negative. Can't really do much of that. And he, he's not had a, a CBC yet. So how do we manage him? Uh, do we increase his combination therapies on moderate dose ICS? Do we refer him to a specialist? Well, I think that you know
1: he's 12, and we know that there are at least Two of the biologics now that are possible in mm-hmm. a 12 year old. Mm-hmm. So I know in the back of my mind that if I refer, that is a possibility that that is something that could be appropriate for him. And he is still quite He's symptomatic. Still pretty symptomatic. Yeah, and you know, when he can't do the things he wants to do, uh, and his FEV1 is. Really, for a 12 year old, I don't like 75% predicted. That, that doesn't make me happy at all. So I think it really is time that I send Liam on to a specialist with telling the parents exactly what we just talked about that, you know, he's not doing well, he can't do his activities. We've, they've modified and done a great job of trying to address everything that they and is Liam. addressable could, uh, and it,
2: it's still just not working. Yeah. He, he's, uh, he's still not where we'd all like him to be. Um, would you increase his combination therapy?
1: Well, I'm pretty high up on his combination therapy right now. Again, I probably would because it's going to take, take me three months to get, to you know, get, to get the referral. Me. That's <laughs> right. So, yeah, I think during that three months, I am going to try because... Uh, now he will have been on high-dose, the highest-dose therapy that's acceptable Mm -hmm. for him. Uh, I'm going to check, you know, his CBC. I know I'm not going to do his phenol because I don't have phenol in my office. I'm not going to do a CT or any of those things. But I certainly can get uh, at least one CBC with differential uh, and try. And, yes, then I'm going to do
2: two things at once. Right. So you repeat his spirometry, and he is 73%. Again, that same level of obstruction. He's got good reversibility. This time his allergy testing comes up positive. Who knew? Sometimes allergy testing can change. In this case, uh, it does come up positive. His exhaled nitric oxide is 54. That's very elevated. I was elevated. going to say, that's, that's quite high. That's very <laughs> elevated. But his bloodiest eosinophils are kind of in that borderline zone. They're 250 per microliter. And he clearly has some nasal congestion, but you don't see polyps. Well, what is his phenotype? Well, he's, he's 12, um, he's had asthma for much of his life. He's certainly gonna be an early onset disease with evidence for type two inflammation. He's got allergies, he's got uh, high exhaled nitric oxide and his bloody eosinophils are in that borderline on one, on one blood count. So at that point, you've got a, a child who's got type two high asthma Um, And at this point, it looks like he has some upper airway issues going on. So, again, obviously, I think you're going to treat his nasal uh, symptoms and put him on nasal rinses and and nasal steroids. And, and, uh, by the way, I'd be interested to know how often primary care uses uh, nasal irrigations or nasal rinses. Is this something that gets talked about very often? It does. It gets talked about a lot more now, and
1: there are several over-the-counter products. We do talk to patients about be sure you're using sterile water yes, yes. when you do Distilled those. You water. don't just run it under the tap and do it. Yep. Uh, I think that one's critical. But I think this is something with some of the newer devices that they can do it very easily in the shower, bathtub, whatever. So, yes, I think they are getting used more and more with the saline. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not doing a, a steroid. Nasal rinse necessarily. I'm doing ser- uh, the saline, and then having them use the nasal steroids right, separately. Right, right,
2: right. But I think they can, in fact, be very helpful for for many patients. And I agree. It's such a simple, inexpensive it thing, is. thing to do. It really well, is.
1: and you know, and kids aren't as bad as adults about. Uh, shooting something <laughs> up their the nose. <laughs> They've been doing that <laughs> For since a they long were very time. little. Exactly, yes. <laughs>
2: exactly. Um, so the dose was increased to high-dose combination um, therapy. And uh, three months, he still had to go to the emergency room. Still went to the emergency department because of an asthma attack. And again, you're doing all the right things here. You clearly are. Um, he was treated with omelizumab by the specialist that he finally got into. See, boy, those specialists have those long waits. Anyway, <laughs> and you saw that his... Now, a couple months later, his lung function improved a little bit. He's got less allergy symptoms, and his exhaled nitric oxide dropped a little bit. Um, but now it goes back to you, and now you're there with him and his mom, and they report, well, you know, we've seen that specialist, but you know, maybe we're we're still not doing quite as well.
1: As and I'm going to agree with them, and I'm not going to say, well, we're going to see a different specialist because that one didn't do <laughs> the right thing. We're going to talk about the fact that what was done seemed appropriate first step in a biologic uh... this is the one that's been around for a very long time and people who are a little bit uncomfortable with medications if i can tell them look this has been used for twenty years they're going to be a little more comfortable so i think that this was an appropriate appropriate. trial and it didn't work. But they should be kind of used to that by now because we've had to try several things. And so what I would say to them is, this is not a failure of biologics. This is a first trial with a biologic. And I think that you need to go back and see the specialist again. And let's talk about whether or not there is a different biologic that might be more appropriate uh, for you and your special right. type of asthma and might be more helpful. So
2: let's don't give up. Let's try again. Let, let's try again. And, and, again, I think this gets back to how we're trying to come up with biomarkers that better predict right. this is the right medicine for Liam, but we're not quite there yet. And there still is going to be a little bit of trial and error. We've identified pretty easily that he's a type 2 high asthmatic, right. but we don't really know what the best therapy for him is. And clearly, omalizumab has been around for the longest amount of time and it's the, has the absolute longest experience in children. And everyone wants to consider safety first when you're dealing with a 12-year-old. So I absolutely think that that was well and i think that they can understand
1: because you know maybe one of the parents has hypertension for example and it's unlikely that the first medicine that parent got on for their hypertension is the one they're on now and so you can kind of explain you know this is all us needing to try and see what's best for you and most of the time we do have to try more than one thing. <laughs> Unfortunately, that is
2: that is too often still the yes. case. All right, new case. Terry, yes. 45-year-old man, no history of childhood asthma or allergies. Unlike Liam, he his asthma actually started in his mid-30s, had a history of sinus disease, post-nasal drip, and... Some good family practice doctor looked in his nose and saw nasal polyps. And I
1: would be so excited if I saw a nasal polyp. I think I'd call the specialist immediately and say,
2: I saw one, I saw one. They're not easy to see. No, they're not, but sometimes they're almost hanging out the the nose. Right, right. Anyway, but... Unfortunately, Terry has not been very good with taking his medications. Um, he's been taking his lab ICS one time per day, not twice a day as prescribed. Obviously, there are some lab ICS, which are once a day, right. but he was on a twice a day one, and he <laughs> right. was only taking it half as often as he needed to. But he's beginning to adhere better. He's now on high-dose combination therapy and actually taking it twice a day, or as written. Um, those issues have resolved, but his asthma is still not very well controlled. His ACT is 15, and he ha- has had two exacerbations in the last year. So, what do we do now? So, I'm going to weigh in on this one first because this this guy came to me now, and so well, I'm gonna, and as the yeah, because I'm if we saw
1: those polyps, him. you got
2: them. <laughs> so, he's been wheezing with upper respiratory tract infections over the last couple of years. Uh, Especially if he takes an ibuprofen, um, a uh, uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug will make his asthma symptoms worse. We do a sinus CAT scan, and goodness knows, you can hardly even see his maxillary sinuses anymore. They're completely occluded with mucus. Um, And his ethmoid sinuses have some obvious polyps that you can see there. His bloody eosinophils aren't just 300. They're twice that. They're (laughs) 600. And the review of his chart reveals that he's been up to 1,000 on a few occasions. Now, no, 1,000 <laughs> ought to make everybody sort of step back and, and take notice. His exhaled nitric oxide is really high. That would make you stop, too. <laughs> exactly, That it, it would it make makes me, me do stop. it again and say, is this wrong? <laughs> oh, trust me. Some of these patients can have exhaled nitric oxide of above 200
1: Whoa. on
2: all of these medications, and their exhaled nitric oxide is still above 200. Uh, um, his IgE level is eh, maybe minimally elevated, but certainly not very high. In contrast to Liam, he is an adult onset, type 2 high, very eosinophilic asthma patient with aspirin-exacerbated respiratory disease. I mean, his history is pretty clear. He takes ibuprofen, and he gets increased wheezing. So he returns. You make sure he doesn't take any ibuprofen, but like most people with AERD, he's still wheezing, and he's still short of breath, and he's not taking any aspirin or nonsteroidals, and his asthma's not better. He also has GERD. You repeat his evaluation with another CBC, and oh, they haven't improved. They're still high, they're still 800. His IG is a little bit higher now, slightly elevated, and his exhaled nitric oxide has come down a little, but it's still very high, he's still at 50. Um, And he's taking his combination therapy uh, back to taking it once a day, and it's really supposed to be twice a day. So does Terry have severe asthma? Well, I would say there's every evidence in the world that Terry has severe asthma. Um, We've treated his sinus problems already. We treated him with nasal steroids and nasal rinses. Um, We've treated his GERD, but he continues to have more courses of of oral prednisone, more uh, courses of steroids, and he is certainly needing his referral. So the treatment decision as to which biologic he should be on, he's a candidate for any of the type 2 biologics at, at this stage. The only perhaps... The um, uh, direction that you might have is that the anti-L4 receptor antibody was recently approved for the treatment of nasal polyps. The anti-L5s have not been approved for the treatment right. of nasal polyps. Um, but certainly anti-L5 receptor antibodies have been shown to work best in, in people with nasal polyps, although the impact on their nasal polyps is, uh, has not yet been demonstrated. They should certainly continue to avoid all aspirin and other non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs products uh, and continue his nasal rinses and his nasal steroid with possible referral to an ear, nose, and throat physician, although just removing nasal polyps isn't a very good treatment for them. They typically grow back, so you remove them once, and within six months or so, they they can certainly come back. All right, here's our, I believe, our final case. Joan, this is a 37-year-old woman, uncontrolled asthma. Uh, Again, despite addressing all these comorbidities, adherence inhaler technique, uh, she's referred for an allergist evaluation, um, and when uh, um, this person is seen, they're already on a biologic and high-dose combination therapy. Uh, but she comes to you because, guess what, she's having an asthma exacerbation. I'm going to hand it off to you now. What do you do? She's, she's on a biologic already. I don't know which one, but she could be on any of them. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you as her primary care physician do? In this day, she's coming back to you, and she's in the middle of an asthma exacerbation.
1: Well, I'm probably going to try to contact my colleague and say, hey, there's a problem. But I am going to treat the acute exacerbation. I am going to give her oral corticosteroids. Mm -hmm. There is no contraindication just because she is on the biologic for her, you know, no contraindication for her to have the oral steroid. So you still treat the exacerbation. But I think it's really important that I don't just treat it and then say, well, just keep your usual appointment. I think I need to let her allergist or pulmonologist, whichever one saw her, let them know what's going on Mm -hmm. uh, because they may choose to have her come back sooner or especially if this is a person who is doing their therapy at home. uh, There are some real questions about maybe adherence. If she's going to an infusion center, she may not be seen in the allergist or pulmonologist's office except every three to six months. And so this is one that I think we need to make sure because if someone's on a biologic and they're having exacerbations, they need to be reevaluated Correct. in my opinion. Yeah,
2: I would I would completely agree with all of that and and again the golden rule is if there's if there's a problem with the asthma exacerbations there's no change in the treatment of the asthma exacerbation from their, what there would be if they weren't on a biologic.
1: Right, you don't want to sit around and wait because maybe the uh, specialist can't call you back for 2 days because they're tied up with something or other. Uh, you don't want to not treat the no. patients treat for two that days. You want to treat it now.
2: Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Well, there is one final case here. This is Marco. Um, Marco's 43. He's got a sprained ankle. Um, during his uh, review of his medications, that he tells you that um, he stopped using all of his asthma medications because, dang, those biologics are working so well that he's the happiest he's been in a long time, and he doesn't need any of these other medications. Now what do you do?
1: Well, I certainly don't think I'm going to uh, reinforce stopping all his (laughs) inhalers. I think that's a little drastic because we don't know what's going to happen three to six months from now. So I am going to let his specialist know that he has stopped him. I'm going to see if I can convince him that we will step down from what he was taking but still leave him if he was on high-dose combination therapy, can we step down to medium-dose combination therapy and get him back to the specialist? Uh, but I'm not going to say, oh, that's terrific. <laughs> that's Let's terrific. just stop everything. <laughs> right. uh, because as you said, this can be very problematic, and it's asthma is variable.
2: It's highly What's variable. What's
1: well-controlled this month may not be doing so well two months from now, and I want him to have those medications to continue.
2: And, and I completely agree. And, and like we said, sometimes insurance will not pay for the medications if you're not taking even high-dose inhaled corticosteroids. Um, but but I think there's no data to suggest that these drugs will work in the absence of background inhaled corticosteroids. So I think it, it is very important to at least have the patient on medium-dose inhaled corticosteroids while they're on these medications. Well, and to let you... you know,
1: I assume you'd think that's pretty important, too.
2: Yes, absolutely. <laughs> My job is to try to figure out what is the best first biologic, and it's not so easy, and I'm going to make mistakes. But there are certainly some indications, as, as we've talked about. So, you know, certain drugs seem to work better in people with adult-onset disease and nasal polyps. And there are some people that may have um, concomitant comorbidities that would drive us down one path or another. Obviously, if somebody's got a severe atopic dermatitis and, and asthma, one might right. consider an anti, uh, IL-4 receptor antibody. I think it's my job to monitor the dosing, to make sure that they're taking it um, as they're supposed to, uh, as it's prescribed, to monitor safety, to monitor efficacy. And I'm the one that should be deciding when is enough enough. When do I change to a different biologic? And that's complicated, and, again, there aren't definitive guidelines on on that. And then, obviously, this is a co-management issue. This is my role is to communicate with you or whatever primary care physician regarding all of the above, to keep you in the loop. So you, when that patient does show up in your office with an asthma exacerbation or poor control or whatever it is, right. you know what, the, what treatment the patient's on, how long they've been on it, have they had side effects, et cetera. So I think all of that is important. So in summary, um, I think we now have a total of five different biologic therapies for severe asthma. Uh, other than rheumatoid arthritis, I don't think there's any other disease that has quite as many, chronic disease, it has quite as many biologic therapies available okay. for it. Um, there's a lot of data to support their safety and efficacy, and in fact, they have changed lives. Absolutely, I'm very comfortable saying that people have come in and said these are game changers. Uh, but choosing the right biologic for the right patient is still challenging. It's not can be. It is challenging. It's challenging and there may be more than one choice for what works as well um, but again patients who respond can truly have a life-changing impact and then monitoring following and changing therapy i think is in fact a team effort between primary care and specialist and unless i get feedback from you and you get feedback from me we may not always make the best decisions
1: so the optimal diagnosis and management of severe asthma of course begins uh I'd like to think in the primary care office, making sure that we've made the accurate diagnosis, looking to see if there are other diagnoses. We need to confirm that it is uncontrolled asthma uh, and optimize treatment, the comorbidities, the triggers, the adherence, the inhaler technique, uh ruling out other possible explanations for the presentation. I may do some of that. But then I may also say, I need (laughs) help with this. Uh, And I think that we can't stress enough that effective communication is crucial to all of this. And, yes, communication with the patient, if they're a child or adolescent, with their parents, too. Uh, But then with my colleague that I'm co-managing with, how can you call it (laughs) co-anything, If you're not talking to each other, and it doesn't have to be on the phone anymore. It can be through the EMR, through, you know, all kinds of different ways to communicate. Uh, And so I think it's really important. And we haven't talked a lot about asthma action plans, but I did want to just emphasize that. I think we don't use them often enough in primary care. I'm hoping that all of my patients that I refer and they come back on biologics have an asthma action plan and maybe it'll help me learn to use them more effectively.
2: So a referral to an asthma specialist when symptoms and exacerbations remain uncontrolled can be helpful if further diagnostic testing is required. If additional biomarkers, uh, other approaches to phenotyping the patients can be helpful in identifying uh, which additional therapies uh, might be beneficial, and then obviously considering the biologic therapy. And I think most, most. people would acknowledge that once you are to the biologic therapy route, that a specialist probably should be involved in that management. On behalf of the American Thoracic Society and the American Academy of Family Physicians, thank you so much for joining us for this very important educational program.
0: You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by the American Academy of Family Physicians and the American Thoracic Society and is supported by an independent educational grant from AstraZeneca Pharmaceuticals LP and GlaxoSmithKline. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash CME. Thank you for listening.